Oh, yeah, Mark, I love that overbite. We're both sitting here dancing. Doing the white man's overbite? <laughs> what show was that from, Wade? <laughs> that is from the other role for, well, okay, William Shatner. Uh, that name alone should just get people cracking up. So William Shatner has had three legendary television parts. Now, that's impressive for somebody who already is, you know, typecasting. Once you have one, you are an icon. I mean, you're, you're usually drilled into a part if, you, if it's super successful, and no one will ever associate you with anything else. And, you know, look, Ted Danson is still Sam Malone, right? That's sort of all he'll ever be known for. So Shatner, to outgrow Captain James Tiberius Kirk and to be able to have two other iconic television parts is very impressive. Now, of course, one of those we, we know most recently was Denny Crane. And, you know what's uh, funny? When you said three legendary parts, I didn't even know what the third one was. I'd never seen, uh, was it Boston Legal? Yeah. I'd never seen it. Oh, oh he, Denny Crane is amazing. Really? Uh, yeah, oh yeah, he's fantastic. It's, it's truly iconic. It is, he's, a, he's hilarious, and uh, it's, you know, he's an old fat Shatner, but he's so deadpan and so funny. But of course, the other one, the other one, Mark, <laughs> it's a jungle out there. Somebody's got to go clean up those streets. Every week, every week he would give us a lecture on police work and the importance of police work. That show sucked. And T.J. Hooker. Uh, come on, give it up. That show sucked. Come on, look at that, look at that foursome. T.J. Hooker, come on. You know Heather Locklear, yeah. Yeah, that's what... Adrian I mean, Zemed. Oh, please, give it up. It was fantastic. This show was so much fun. I'd watch it every week. Shatner running around in the... His blue uniform and his toupee and just that was. You just know what's too interesting is that uh, the guy who wrote that not very good theme is still around. His uh, name is Mark Snow, and according yeah. to IMDb, which I, I'm just trolling IMDb now, after, this guy studied at Juilliard. Yeah. And after studying at Juilliard, he formed a band called the Rock and the New York Rock and Roll Ensemble. Oh no, kidding! Which in, one of the other members of that band was Michael Kamen. No kidding. Michael Kamen, yes, wow. the late great Michael Kamen. Okay. Lethal Weapon and lots of great movies. All right. Very good. So, in any case, uh, Shatner just kills it in uh, T.J. Hooker. It's hysterical. It's a little campy. I know. Yes, of course it is. But this was Heather Locklear's uh, coming out, right? This was before she was on Dynasty. Mm -hmm. This is when the two Heathers were ABC's claim to fame, right? They had Heather Thomas on The Fall Guy, and they had Heather Locklear on T.J. Hooker. Heather Thomas never... Heather Locklear was always more popular. I will never ever forget when they both when they were dunked in the baseball, the, the softball dunk together. Oh, the Battle of the Network, Network stars? stars. I was standing about 18 feet away. I think it was Rick Schroeder that did that, and I've never even brought that. I should I should bring that up with him actually someday. Uh, that was like a legendary moment in my life. That was a turning point. I sat there and I saw both Heathers drop into the into. The, it was just it was so special. It was so meaningful. I'll never forget it. I was I was ten feet away. I was. Wait, you were you were eighteen feet away five seconds ago. I was five feet away. Wow, you were in the you were in the tank with them. I don't remember. <laughs> oh man, that would I would have died and gone to heaven. Uh, no, it was uh, I was standing close. I was nearby. I was. Uh, you were watching on television. I was close as I could be. No, I was up. You were in video. You, you you were in video village. I went to every one of the Battle of the Network stars for about four or five years when I was in junior high and high school. Every one of them. Yeah. Every one that they had. They'd have them, like, I think twice a year. Well, they, they used to shoot them at, uh, Pepperdine. at Pepperdine. Yeah. yeah. You know, just drive, you know, 10 minutes, and it was an easy park. It was, it was, you know, nobody would ever really go. I mean, there'd be people running around getting autographs, but it was one of the most... It's, I mean, you couldn't do that today. If you did that today... No, they're, they're doing it today. They, 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 they launched a new Battle of the Network Stars. Yeah, but it's, it's different. There aren't th just three networks anymore, you know? It, back then, it now was... It's like, it's Steve Jones from Spike TV's look, blah, blah. Yeah, see... Somehow like, it's not the same. It's not the same. Back then, everybody knew every single show that every single one of those actors was on. Because it was there was only there three was. networks. Prime time was only, you know, whatever, four yeah. hours. Yeah. So there was a finite number of people. I mean, look, look, Netflix could have a battle of the Netflix stars and most people wouldn't know 80% of the people who are actually competing and they wouldn't know the shows. There's just so much product out there. It's all diluted now. So, you know, back then it was a big deal, but it was, you, the stars were accessible. You could just be hanging out on the, on the field and get autographs. And it was, you know, there wasn't, there was a, there was a proximity with the stars that was really rather extraordinary. And also, because we didn't really know that much about this, there was no Instagram, there was no Twitter, right. there was no 24-hour entertainment news. You know, to see Ed Begley Jr. in shorts and sneakers <laughs> running around doing a pole vault or something was a big deal. Yes, it was. 
Yes, it was. So it was TJ, like, wow, they're real people. They wear shorts <laughs> and sneakers. So in any case, what we're talking about is the complete T.J. Hooker, all five seasons. It ran for five seasons. There's more T.J. Hooker than Star Trek. That's, you realize that? That's, 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 that's a crime, speaking of uh, cop shows. <laughs> so uh, anyway, T.J. Hooker, 21 DVDs, five seasons, Thank you, Shout Factory, no, for you making know this dream come true. No, you know what? The only here, there's only two of those shows that I would gladly watch and enjoy thoroughly. The first would be Rockford Files, and then Hill Street Blues. Yeah, well, I think all these other shows like T.J. Hooker, they're they're they're, they're not they're cheesy. They're not gonna hold up. They're cheesy. It's so much fun to watch again. It really is. It's yeah, so but much I mean, fun it's, to watch. yes, it ain't it, for for the nostalgia and cheese factor. Yes, James Darren was on this show. <laughs> what was he doing in that show? Well, he was you know he, he was like the elder. Was he like the elder statesman? Yeah, he was he's still kind of older. Yeah, he was still kind of young at the time. He's when, part of the team. He's you know he's like the. But James Darren, I I I think of like fifties teeny bopper music when I think of James Darren for some reason. It's just the the the, the joy of this show. Is James Darren still around? The joy of this show. He's eighty-one. Look, he looks. Look at James Darren. Looks exactly the same. Oh, he's James fantastic. Darren. Good for him. His real name is James William Ercolani. So here's the thing, James Darren. Fine. Heather Locklear, delicious. Adrian Zemed has a haircut that would never have been allowed in the LAPD, but who cares? And it's not the LAPD. It's the LCPD, right? They you know make up LCPD. a they make up a thing. It's just, Liberty it's, City or something. Whatever. It's, just, it's all Los shot. Angeles. <laughs> It's all shot in L.A. We recognize all that stuff. Uh, but it's, uh, you know, Shatner is just so much fun. He's so much fun. He, he has fun. so He just chews the scenery with, relentlessly, okay, more than on Star point, Trek. Okay, at what point did Shatner realize, I'm no longer an actor, I'm a caricature of an actor? I think the first Star Trek convention. <laughs> Because I remember going to SpaceCon 4 when I was... But he was uh, in Judgment at Nuremberg. Shatner was in Judgment at Nuremberg. Yeah, like, the, one of the, 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 arguably the best Holocaust film ever. Yeah. Uh, so I think it was probably at the first Star Trek convention when he realized uh, these people are nuts and they just want me to overact. And all right, I'm going to give it to them. I'm dialing it up to 11. Uh, and I remember very, very well SpaceCon 4. I was a kid. I was, what, five years old, something like that. And I went to SpaceCon 4 with a good friend of mine. And uh, his dad drove us down there and dropped us off at the L.A. Convention Center. We were, all, we were in there, and there's people walking around with tricorders and outfits and the whole thing. So we're like, yeah, there's only a few years after Star Trek's off the air, right? It's already gone cult wacko. And Shatner comes out. DeForest Kelly, I think, was drunk. He read a, he read a poem, and it was like really – his speech was slurred. But uh, Shatner came out, and, you know, packed convention center, and he goes, no, thank you, quiet, quiet, please, please, quiet. And people are <sighs> Everyone's going nuts. It was really crazy. It was insane. This is 1970s. And finally, he says, the captain says, quiet. And everybody shut up. And in that moment, I thought, I mean, I'm just a kid. And I thought, wow, that's, that's some serious power. That's when it went to his head. That's he when it went to his head. He can command a room of strangers uh, so thoroughly. That's when it went to his head. That's the ego went to his head. That's when he became T.J. Hooker. You know what's funny? That's I like when Kirk became Hooker. Okay, I was watching last night because I stayed home. Yes. Right on a Friday night because yep. I'm a loser. Yeah. Who hates his job and would sure. rather sit home and be miserable than go out sure. and do something. Yep. I watched uh, a mock time. I really this is a true story. I with, really did with, sit with, home on a Friday night and they had a mock time on TV and I watched it. And and is to pring as hot as 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 we thought at the you time. You know what that you know what that's actually one of the better Star Trek scripts. Yeah. It's a good script. Written by did Robert Theodore Clark? Sturgeon. Theodore Sturgeon, that's right. And a, a, a science fiction legend. And it's like you're you're looking at like the tricorders and the communicators and you're and you're like at the time a communicator looked like yeah. this amazing thing that we would never achieve. Now you look at the communicator, you're like this thing had three buttons and a round, and a little round knob. Mm -hmm. if, if there was a real communicator in the world, it would not have three buttons and a round knob. Like they seem so, like the design. We, we 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 don't know what we know. We didn't know what we know now. So the idea that a communicator would have a little tiny round thing and three tiny buttons seemed like the, the height of science fiction. Yeah. Now we look at that and go, you know, come on. Yeah, I agree. Or the Absolutely. tricorder, or, or that, that 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 little knob thing that that. Dr. McCoy would wave over people, and then he would look at the, it was like a little lipstick-looking thing. Mm -hmm. He would wave it over people, look at the other end of it, and say, well, he obviously has uh, di diverticulitis. <laughs> like, how do you know that from looking at a tiny little thing? Uh, you know what? So it's like, it was, does, does, it, does it give you a number? And then he has the chart <laughs> with the numbers remembered. It says 17. You have diverticulitis. <laughs> How does he know that? Uh, because a little wavy thing. Because it's in the script. That's why. Dang it, all. it was the size of lipstick. Yeah, whatever. That's fine. 
so in 1967, there was a show called Cornet Blue, which has now been released by Kino Lorber, uh, courtesy of CBS, who uh, had this in their library. Normally, CBS library stuff it comes out through Paramount. So uh, this appears to be part of that same arrangement that Kino, you know, they, they license a lot of that stuff for their studio classics from, uh, from studio wait, libraries. Wait, 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 wait. What? Oh, hold the phone. What? Do you know who James Darren's son is? James Darren's son. This is not that interesting, but I was just surprised. Um, I, I'm, I'm trolling him on Wikipedia. I don't know. Jack Black? I don't know. Jim Moray, the guy from Enter uh, Inside Edition. You know Jim Moray, the, uh, yeah. the entertainment reporter yeah. from Inside Edition? He's done... Uh, Looks like him. That's, that's James Darren's son. Why is his name not... James, James Earl Earl Colani. <laughs> yeah. Oh, oh, why is it not Jim? Uh, why is it not yeah. Jim Darren? I don't yeah. know. Well, because then he'd have the same name as his dad. Okay. Maybe you want to get away from that. All right. That's really weird. I didn't know that. Wow. That means nothing to anybody who's listening to this. <laughs> it means nothing to you. I thought you would go at least go. Okay. Wow. Interesting. Uh, that's interesting. Yeah. yeah okay. I mean, yeah, you know, hell. Okay, it'd be better if it was Jack Black. <laughs> Actually, Jack Black is James Darren's father. Oh, that's see that now I'm confused. Wow. So anyway, Coronet Blue from 1967, part of the CBS library. Uh, it looks like this is something that Paramount was never going to release. So as part of their ongoing licensing uh, access, Kino Lorber went and snatched it up and released it. And it's a good thing, too. This is one of those 60s series. And they're every, you know, television, before television became ubiquitous and, and too many shows to keep track of, back when TV Guide was still on the, on the stands and TV Guide would have their fall preview every year. And you oh, could I used go, to read that every damn it year. It was great, wasn't it? And you'd go through and you'd see all the new shows and it was, it was digestible and it was accessible and you could, you could sort of figure out what you were going to watch on what nights and what you could forego and then there'd be two shows that were on at the same time. My grandfather... And we got upset because we, we didn't have you know VHS. My grandfather used to... Actually, you know what? This was the New York Times um, TV listings. He used to sit in his rocking chair with the New York Times TV listings with a pen and he would circle everything he was going to watch that night. Yeah. That's what we all did. We were all great. We're doomed. Fantastic. It's amazing we haven't blown up the world. So from that era, there were a lot of shows that ran for one season, maybe two seasons, season and a half, you know, stuff that ran a few episodes, things that just didn't, didn't play with audiences that didn't get the ratings that got canceled very early on. Uh, but still, they, 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 they resonate. What's interesting about Cornet Blue is this is created by Larry Cohen. We love Larry Cohen, right? Larry Cohen's the man. Uh, Larry Cohen, who directed so many great exploitation films, including, you know, Q, Quetzalcoatl, uh, the, 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 the Winged Serpent, uh, to, to Black Caesar, who was a big part of the black exploitation era, um, and who was whose sister was the, uh, the publicist um, who, who was murdered just a couple of years ago. Um, so, you know, Larry Cohen, really a Hollywood fixture, great screenwriter, wrote The Phone Booth. You know? phone booth that was supposed to uh, star Jim Carrey initially. It was, was supposed to be a Hitchcock film. Hitchcock he wrote, film. It for, wrote it for Hitchcock, and then decades later, it becomes a Joel Schumacher movie with uh, Colin, Farrell. Colin Farrell. So Larry Cohen created this show, and it's too bad that it didn't run longer because he would have become a big TV person. It, Thirteen episodes is all this thing ran, uh, and it is—it's uh, basically—it uh, sort of fell in between the cracks with all the other espionage shows at the time. It wasn't—it wasn't quite the saint. It wasn't Mission Impossible. It just didn't, it, it, it sort of wasn't, it, you know, it wasn't I Spy, and it, it wasn't, it didn't have time to sort of grow its own identity amid all that stuff. But it's still really, really interesting. Frank Converse, uh, who plays this, uh, this double agent who's, you know, lost his memory and he's trying to sort of, you know, work his way through it, really, really interesting. Uh, very good performance, and uh, in many respects, this feels a little bit like The Prisoner. You know, it feels like a cross between Mission Impossible and The Prisoner on some level, a little bit of The Saint. It's got all those vibes. Really interesting show. But really, the, the reason I'm glad Kino Lorber picked this up again is what a list of, of guest stars. I mean, seriously. This thing has, it's, in 13 episodes, it's amazing who shows up on this thing. Alan Alda, Dick Clark, Sally Kellerman, Juliet Mills, Candace Bergen, David Carradine, Billy Dee Williams, uh, Brenda Vaccaro, John Voight, Roy Scheider. I mean, it's amazing. It's just you, you're, the, every episode is just a cavalcade of some of the great actors that we all remember growing up. This show got some amazing traction with its, with its casting. So uh, you got to check out Coronet Blue. It's a great rediscovery. It's a, it's a show that sadly just did not really take off, but it's, it's a cool show. 
Well, thank you. It's a you, cool eh? show, man. It's a cool show. What else we got in the TV land? Uh, what else we got? We got Underground season two. This thing um, has been canceled by uh, WGN. It's a, it, you know, it's a, gr- it's a great idea. Here's the thing with Underground. You know, it's obviously based on the, uh, the Underground Railroad in uh, Georgia, and it's such a fascinating story. And there was a great book written about it recently. You know, I, I kind of sometimes I kind of bump against these kind of shows that I feel like it's taking advantage of this horrible thing for ratings. I don't know why. Like, for some reason, I, 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 I never felt that way about Hogan's Heroes, even though Hogan's Heroes was about a goddamn prisoner war camp or whatever. You know, uh, underground... Like, it, it's such a... I mean, it's, it, I mean, what these people went through was so horrible, and I, their journey is so worth telling, that somehow, when I feel it's like a WGN show, it's, I just kind of bump so, on that. So here's the problem that I have, and, and this goes right to the present day, too. The, there, something happened, and it was largely precipitated by 12 Years a Slave, but something happened with 12 Years a Slave where a lot of people, rather than seeing that in a Schindler's Listy kind of way, like this is the movie, the defining movie about this particular point in history that gives us that cathartic release, that lets us say, okay, we have now cinematically finally reconciled ourselves to this moment. I, a lot of people misread that, and they took it to mean, oh, really? We can do slave stuff now? Sweet! And now we get a remake of Roots, and we get Underground, and now the people who did Game of Thrones are going to do a new series where... Confederate. Confederate, which is like Man in the High Castle, uh, alternate history stuff where it's in America where slavery never went away. And I kind of feel like, okay, you know what? If I'm a black actor, which I'm not, but I'm I'm trying to put myself in their shoes, the last thing I really want is to think, oh, great, now... I'm going to be auditioning for slave parts again. You kind of want that to go away, you know? Yeah, it seemed you, as if we had gotten beyond yeah, that. I, I, I'd like to see black actors auditioning not for exclusively black parts, but for all parts. Like, let's get the best actor available, irrespective of race, right? And the more we have stuff like this, the more that people are going to think of, of black actors for black parts, and black actors are going to be playing slave parts. And it's time we really let that go. I, I just really want that to go away. I can't. I, so Underground may be a good show, but I, I can't. I just, subject-wise, I can't, I can't wrap myself around it. I just want Idris Elba to play James Bond. He's too old. He'd be awesome. He's too old. He's too old now. He'd be awesome. He's too old now. If, you know what? How about Tom Hardy? I want Tom Hardy or Idris Elba to play James Bond. Tom Hardy may very well be it, but he's, you know, he's got a lot of other things going, too. Look, Idris Elba is, is the same age as Daniel Craig. He's too old. They want somebody who's going to be able to, to give him five-some films, and it takes you know, three years for each film. So you, you, you know, to plug somebody in, a, we don't want a 65-year-old James Bond unless he's going to have a body like, like Daniel Craig. So uh, typically they like somebody to play Bond who's... You know, early thirties. That's where they like that to be. Yeah, but Idris Elba. He's great. Tom but, Hardy. But Idris Elba is also great. in. He's also in the Dark Tower. Idris Elba plays uh, the gunslinger no, in the Dark Tower. I don't care. You know what? I, I I miss the whole Dark Tower thing. Okay. People love that thing. People, there was it was like a, it was seventeen books and people. Yeah. Just, it was like Lord of the Ringsy. Okay, in terms we got to move of, this uh, mythology. Yes, we do. We got to move this along. So okay. uh, we got some British TV stuff. Uh, Mothers and Other Strangers. Uh, World War Two is of course making a big ba- big big comeback. We're gonna talk about Dunkirk and their finest. What was the name of that underground? Uh, 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 we got the, her- the, the railroad, church. Underground Railroad book. Uh, everyone's talking about Colson. Uh, was it? I think it was a woman, Colson. Colton. Gary Oldman, going to win an Oscar for uh, playing Churchill. That's y- all I'm saying. Y- you, know, you know what? When, when he was nominated for uh, a Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, yeah. which I loved, it had been, he had never been nominated for an Oscar. I know. And it was the most. You, yeah. you know, we all talk about a- actors who we cannot believe have never won an Oscar. Yeah. Gary Effing Oldman, you kidding me? This year, this Come is on. it. Now or next year, but this is the year. It's it, it, that, that Churchill performance is is going to win hands down. There's nothing else that's going to come close. It's just you look at that and you, it just has Oscar written all over it. It's unbelievable. Uh, so Mother and Other Strangers is a PBS masterpiece. Takes place in Northern Ireland. Deals with a family during World War II, uh, right next to where a U.S. Army Air Corps base has been set up. The Army Air Corps is, of course, the predecessor to the uh, the Air Force, and uh, you know this is a this is one of those solid British period World War II legacy series with some wonderful wonderful uh, performances. And it's a uh, you know the the idea of this culture clash, the Americans and the British, World War II, all of it. It's really good. It's a really really good show. Looking forward to many 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 more uh, cool episodes. 
Also from PBS, Masterpiece, uh, Tennyson. This is a prime suspect uh, production. Tennyson, A Life of Crime Begins. This is on Blu-ray, and uh, this is basically a prequel to Prime Suspect that goes back into the 1970s and uh, deals with, uh, it stars uh, Stephanie Martini as Jane Tennyson, and um, it's, it's really interesting. If you've, if you've been a fan of, even if you're not a fan of Prime Suspect, uh, you will, um, you'll, you'll really appreciate this. You know, this is, uh, this is quite interesting. Stephanie Martini playing, of course, the part that uh, Helen Mirren Played uh, in the in the regular Prime Suspect, and it is uh, it's quite interesting. It, it connects perfectly. It uh, it sort of gives you some really interesting backdrop on Prime Suspect. The it'll make Prime Suspect an easier and better show to watch as a result. Very very smart. So uh, Tennyson, Life of Crime begins. Very very cool. Uh, there's a cool Australian show, Rake, now in series two. Uh, throw up from Acorn with Richard Roxburgh as the uh, very, very cool uh, solicitor Cleaver Green. Uh, Roxburgh is one of the, one of the he's, just, he's, he's such a great actor and he just continues to mature in really, really interesting ways. Uh, very clever writing, really interesting character, some great casting here. Uh, it just continues to be a really, really interesting show. So uh, highly recommended Rake Series 2 which uh, also features a lot of really great guest stars. Uh, I mean, you know, we, we forget just how many really, really great actors there are uh, down under. Da uh, Tony Collette shows up in this as well. Now what happened to her? Tony Collette. Oh, she's, she's still doing all kinds of stuff. Tony Collette works all the time. She's getting better and better and better. And I just watched Muriel's Wedding again the other day. Gosh, Did you really? Love, yeah. Did it hold up? Yeah, totally. It's on uh, Filmstruck. Oh, you love your film. I truck. love my film truck so. Uh, much. How much you pay? How much do people pay for that a month? Uh, it, was like, it was like it was like ninety some dollars for the year. It was like a year your subscription. It was like ninety nine bucks for the year or something, right. hundred bucks for the year. It's fantastic. It's totally great. Right. And uh, do you have anything else? On that? Uh, the one hundred complete fourth season. The one hundred. So uh, the thing is, it's set. Uh, I think it's set hundred years after a nuclear apocalypse, and uh, all life on Earth is wiped out. And this is the continuing voyage of the massive space station called the Ark. Mm, yes. And, uh, you know, they got to uh, get back to Earth because uh, whatever. It, you know, this is a real kind of guilty pleasure thing. And, of course, it's um, luckily the only people remaining on Earth, because this is a CW show, are the hottest people ever. Only the hottest girls and handsomest dudes survived the apocalypse. Unbelievable. Anyway, so uh, the, yeah. uh, the 100. If you know it, you, uh, you already love yeah. it. Girls' final season. This thing finally kind of limped into a limped into the uh, into the corral. Um, this thing probably ran, you know, maybe a season too long. But uh, interesting to see what um, Lena Dunham does next. You know, she's uh, she's doing um, American Horror Story, the new season of American Horror Story, and of course, Allison Williams wound up in the uh, hit terrific film Get Out. So somebody's making a move off of this show, and so Girls is, uh, I think Girls captured the zeitgeist of 20-something friends in New York for a little while, and I think after the end it just kind of was running on fumes, but uh, this is the final season on Blu-ray from HBO. Now, you know what's even better than Girls? Because Girls, I, I just Boys. find insufferable. No, a show that I, I will confess I would never really watched much of, but uh, since one of the stars was, I just spent a, a week with in, in Jordan, uh, I figured <laughs> I'd better, I looked at this, I was like, dang, God. Uh, Pretty Little Liars. So, uh, because Shay Mitchell, yeah. who's on the show, Shay Mitchell and, and her boyfriend Matt Babel, who is a total mensch, an awesome guy. He's, you know, he's on a, uh, a, a Entertainment Tonight quite a bit, right? Da, 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 da. Yeah. So anyway, uh, Shay and Matt were part of our team in uh, in Jordan, and they were both amazing and just so awesome. And uh, uh, we all rode camels and mules together. So uh, I saw this, and I'm like, Doug, uh, I really should watch because you know I've seen Shay in other things like like Mother's Day and stuff like that. Uh, so, uh, you know what? This is actually not a bad show. I, I really, I kind of want to catch up on all the stuff that I don't really uh, understand because there's a lot of backstory here. But uh, Pretty Little Liars, really some, some really good drama here, some really well-written stuff. Uh, this is, of course, a, you know, an extremely feministically oriented show, but uh, it's not pushing buttons the way the girls does. It really gets into these characters. And uh, sadly enough, this is the seventh and final season. So I am uh, kind of coming to this thing probably a little too late, but uh, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna dig up the uh, the other seasons and and catch up on this. So Shay Mitchell and the rest of them, really good job on Pretty Little Liars. And uh, here's hoping they all go on to bigger and better things. We also have Mark Wahlberg and Steven Levinson's TV series Shooter, season one. Um, 
This kind of went beneath the radar as well. This uh, is a USA show, and uh, I don't really pay much attention to USA. But uh, you know what? This is Ryan Felipe and uh, Omar Epps uh, do a very, very solid job of uh, holding down the action on this show, which uh, here's the psychological entree to this show. So you have a veteran who um, has to, uh, play by Ryan Felipe, he plays, you know, a war veteran. Uh, and this is based on a novel, I should point out, too. This is a TV show based on a novel uh, by Stephen Hunter called Point of Impact, which I was also completely unfamiliar with. So um, the basically, somebody's trying, a little 24-ish, too. A little 24-ish. Yeah, 24, what happened to that show? That yeah. show, that, that reboot died. Yeah, it sure did. Well, every, everything has its zeitgeist moment, but here's the deal. So, okay, so Ryan Felipe is a, a veteran, really, really skilled uh, special forces kind of guy who um, is, is drawn back into action by his, uh, his former commander, played by Omar Epps, to try to, t uh, to stop and take down a plot to kill the president. And um, there are other little tentacles to this story, and um, it is uh, it, 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 it always surprises you. So I'm really curious to see where they're going to go. There's only a featurette on this thing. They don't really give you much else, no commentaries or anything. So it'll be interesting to see where they take this thing because it's obviously commentary. Uh, it's obviously offering commentary on recent wars in the Middle East. It's offering commentary on a divisive politics. It's offering commentary on uh, the the um, the social disconnection that we have and that uh, veterans especially have. And it's going to be interesting to see where they take this show. Uh, it's uh, it's it's got some uh, it's got some juice. It's got some places to go. And Mark Wahlberg is a really really smart judge of material. So. I take nothing away from him. Who knew that Mark Wahlberg would become a producer of, you know? Yeah. Who knew that Brett Ratner? I think Brett Ratner as a producer and Mark Wahlberg as a producer and an actor yeah. would actually uh, yeah. be two you. of the more interesting people out there. I hear you. Well, I know you do, Wade. Uh, are we almost done with TV? I think, yeah, okay, well. Oh, okay, television. Uh, the Missing, season two from Stars. Um, not too terribly fond of what I've seen of this show, which isn't too much, but it. Uh, it just it, it feels like one of those um, mysteries within a mystery wrapped around a mystery with a mystery in the in the mushy center stories. What's the one, the OA that was on? Yes, uh, with uh, yeah, what's name? no, that that just goes nowhere. They're all kind of following a lost template. They're afraid they they want to just inundate the audience with itches and scratch none of them. And you, you can't do that. You just really can't do that. So I don't find that template uh, quite as engaging. This is a little bit like that. You got a woman who uh, was abducted, you know, uh, much earlier, and she comes back 11 years later, and, you know, oh, there's all this mystery and uh, whatever. I, yeah, I, I don't know. Uh, the Missing, it, it, uh, it's try. It's a little too self-serious, and I I wish that it had. Uh, I wish it weren't just so wrapped up in its own sense of self-importance. But you know, Stars is doing interesting work, and maybe they'll continue to fund something. I don't know. Uh, Wade Colossal is uh, Anne Hathaway and Jason uh, Sudeikis, and uh, this movie. It's definitely worth checking out. It's a, it's a weird plot. It's a little weird. It's a you know. It somehow it doesn't. My it's my my, well, my sense of it is that it doesn't quite take advantage of what of the. It doesn't quite take it take advantage of what it is it's actually trying to achieve, um, because it's really about a woman trying to overcome a particular trauma. Yeah. Ultimately, yep. that's what it's about. Yeah. And in the film, she plays this. She's out of work. Former party girl, dumped by the boyfriend, runs back to her hometown you know, where she realizes that she actually has the power to control this gigantic monster who's been destroying Seoul, South Korea. So yeah. whenever this monster appears in Seoul, South Korea, if, if, if she stands in this particular part of this particular park in its little town, if she waves her arms, it the waves monster in Seoul waves, waves its arms. So you're like, well, where is this going? Yeah. And I don't know, again, that it really had the focus to really become what it wanted to be, but... No. I think that it gets there just enough and be and it goes into enough surprising places and actually kind of becomes about something just enough where you're like, okay, maybe this maybe they didn't quite slam dunk it, but it's refreshing and clever and different and it does have something to say, even if it doesn't say it in the cleanest way. So um, I would definitely uh, it's a good um, this is one of those Saturday night rentals I would definitely consider. 
um, Colossal with Jason Sudeikis. In a very yeah. serious role, Jason Sudeikis. Yeah. Uh, Slight is uh, being trumpeted as from the producer of Get Out. Donald trumpeted? No. So Slight, S-L-E-I-G-H-T, uh, is, is an okay film. It's, it's more well-intentioned than it is successful. It's an okay film. Uh, stars Jacob Lattimore as a, uh, as a street musician. Uh, he's a, well, not street musician, a street magician, sorry. A street magician who, um, he's taking care of his sister. Their parents have died. And he winds up having to sell drugs, and, and there's a whole, you know, downward spiral to their just trying to get by, trying to scrape by, trying to take care of his sister, and how he's eventually able to sort of redeem them through the use of his magic. It's, um, it's an interesting idea. It's not quite as, again, um, this is a theme now, as fleshed out as it should be, like a little bit like Colossal. Uh, it doesn't. It, 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 they don't quite integrate their themes, and you know, in in, the, in a way that really makes them resonate. But it's it, you know, it's got some good performances, and uh, it's otherwise well done. And it's not a. It's not you know. I've seen a lot worse in recent weeks. So, you know, give it give it give it a look. It's probably a good better rental than anything else. Uh, Sam Jager, Adrian Palicki, and Michael J. White. In SWAT under siege. In a world. Oh my goodness! These, the, you know, SWAT is now a franchise, a straight-to-video franchise. Sony is pumping these things out. They're, they don't care who's in them. They just throw SWAT on top of anything, and it's now it makes it a straight-to-video franchise. It's kind of bizarre. Uh, everything here we've seen before. A lot of decent action. Uh, Tony Giglio is the director. We'll probably do a lot more of these. But otherwise, you know, it's 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 drug cartels and raids and actions and shootouts and whatever. It is nothing here that's really, you know, unless this is your thing and you just like to watch dozens of hours of this every week. It's really not going to. I do. Gonna, yeah. Well, there you go. Uh, it is what it is. Uh, pure country, pure heart. You know, no one loves country music more than I do. Yeah. Um, but I do love cherry pie. Actually, I don't love cherry pie. Um, I don't. Really, I don't like fruit pies. But uh, Pure Country, Pure Heart, the only thing I can say about this is that it features the ageless and uh, totally awesome Willie Nelson. You know, I once gave up a chance to go on Willie Nelson's uh, Busman Smoke Pot. Really? Willie Nelson was on later with Greg Kinnear. And why would you do that? You why know would why? you miss because such I was a great a, opportunity? I was, a, I was an effing goddamn stupid idiot, <laughs> and I thought that it would piss off like my boss or piss off the show, that I would like be invited on to the buzz to smoke pot. Uh-huh. So Willie's like, come on to the buzz. And I said, eh, I don't know if I can, man. And uh, <laughs> I... Regret that so much that 30, 25 years later, I still remember it. All right. By the way, there was a lady with Greg Kinnear reunion. Oh, really? Yes, we had it at, um, at a hotel in uh, North Hollywood. Greg, huh. by the way, was supposed to show up. And he didn't. Uh, we were told. How do you have a later with up. Greg Kinnear reunion without Greg Kinnear? Well, we were told he was going to show up because one of the people who came and was a, ca- a crew member on the show was mm-hmm. Greg's best friend. Okay. So he shows up and says, yeah, Greg's not coming. He had a meeting with the director. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. No, he didn't have a meeting with the director. Terrible. That's no excuse. Exactly. All right. Devil's Domain. In world. With Michael Madsen. Uh, let me tell you. Michael Madsen just is a scary dude. He's a wonderful man and a, and a great actor. But, a but when you meet him and you look into those just those cold eyes and you hear that you hear that voice, you just you just it, chills go up your spine. It is true. It really is true. So when you see Michael Madsen in a movie titled Devil's Domain and the tagline, the tagline for this thing is great. Um, first of all, this this is how you market a, a Blu-ray. This is how you market a straight-to-video Blu-ray. So, Mark. Tell me, what, what do you see? What's the image? Uh, what I see is a, is a Guillermo del Toro film. Yeah, okay. But, but it, it looks Guillermo del Toro-ish. So here's the thing. I'm going to describe it because you're not going to. So the Michael Madsen uh, in a movie called Devil's Domain, it's a silhouette of some devil-looking type thing. What? You can see the horns. You know it's the devil. You don't know anything else about it. It's very mysterious. And you see a couple of uh, satanic symbols. And then the tagline. The tagline is the kicker. At the top, what's the tagline? Never meet a stranger online. Oh no, the devil is trolling for dates. So is that what it means? No, it did. Well, it, what, what I'm saying is, this is great marketing. No, it's, it's not, not terrible. It, it, no, it's great marketing. It's horrible for its audience. It's great marketing. Uh, it's not. It's not a great movie, but it is for people who sort of see evil in every nook and cranny of social media. And this is a total millennial social media gone wrong movie. Um, it's ridiculous. It's it's silly, but it's really really good marketing in terms of the packaging. And uh, 
yeah, you know, she uh, she winds up uh, chatting with the devil online. Be very careful. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm saying, I'm just saying. So uh, here's the movie that made me take a hiatus from all social media for a month. Mm -hmm. uh, that movie would be The Circle. Did, did you see The Circle? No, I did okay. not see The Circle. You should have seen The Circle because it would make you. But uh, was it good or just so stupid? Good, but made you think. Stupid, um, but made you think somehow. Uh, between the two, so the here's the thing. Uh, Emma Watson is a college grad, needs a job. Friend of hers hooks her up at the Circle, <gasps> and here's what the Circle is. The <gasps> Circle, the Circle is basically uh, Amazon meets Google meets Apple. Uh, meets Microsoft. It's uh -huh. it's the like all, all of them mashed together. Uh -huh. It's this hyper tech company on this huge campus with Tom Hanks as the the lovable Steve Jobs character, uh -huh. and everything is interconnected and everyone is plugged in and everybody is you know texting uh -huh. and this and that and the other thing and they have cameras that are going to democratize the world uh -huh. because you can see everything and you put this thing on a tree and uh -huh. of course we all know that this is you know this is just this horrible horrible surveillance culture uh -huh. gone run amok and uh, when she decides to go clear. And let everybody be, and let her life become a social media phenomenon. That's when everything goes off the rails. It's called go clear. Clear. But clear. Should oh, is it clear or is it transparent? Transparent. Sorry, clear. I know clear is the Scientology deals. Transparent. She <laughs> hey goes you. transparent. Eh. See too many movies that all mashes together in my head. Exactly. So um, she goes transparent, and of course Tom Hanks is not all that he's cracked up to be. And Pat Oswalt plays his uh, his little henchman who sits there with this really evil smirk on his face every time he shows up. It's very funny, but. Um, it, is it a very good movie? No, it gets into it. Just gets a little bit ridiculous at a certain point. It just becomes preposterous. The level of uh, social media um, transparency that these people are willing to do. You, you, you really. At a certain point, it just blows credibility out the window. However, um, it, it was effective enough that I, I went completely on a on a on a cleanse, a social media cleanse for sixty uh, for thirty days and. So Glad how I was did. that social media cleanse? It's fantastic. I got so much done. It was of unbelievable. You sit there, in a, sit there in a Facebook hole all day. Yeah. The Lovers with Deborah Winger and Tracy Letts. I love both of them. Do you? You like Tracy Letts? You big for Tracy Letts fan? Tracy Letts gave the best performance I've ever seen on Broadway. See, I've never seen him on stage. He played, uh, he was in Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. He played the oh. Richard Burton part. And really? He was, I have never seen anything like it ever in my life. And he won a Tony for it. And you will absolutely never see anything more, more ferocious and powerful and manipulative than I saw this guy in this, in this play. Unbelievable. Well, this is the antithesis to that then. And I wish I'd have seen him in that because maybe I'd have more of appreciation for this. I thought this was fine. Uh, this is on Blu-ray with uh, Ultraviolet. Um, essentially, it's about a couple, Tracy Letts and Deborah Winger. They're you know, getting to that uh, who's afraid of Virginia Woolf moment. And then uh, things change. And it's about how they rediscover the romance in their in their marriage, and it's uh, it's sweet, and uh, I I guess it's you know I can appreciate the performances, but I I wish I had a little bit more currency to appreciate Tracy Letts generally as an actor. I I think Deborah Winger has done uh, better work. It, I wish this had a, was a little bit darker in some ways, but it's it's perfectly fine. Two two fine actors, but now you have me curious. I want to go see Tracy Letts on stage. Oh. Well, I can't vouch for if he plays a yeah. you know, postman. If he's a postman. I don't know if he's going to play yeah. that type. Anyway, Tommy's Honor is a uh, film about golf, but it's not just a film about golf. Wait, it's a film about life. Aww. Anyway, this film is about um, there is a father-son team in uh, back in the day in Scotland, and they were the ones who were kind of uh, – he got the credit for sort of making – Scotland, what it was in terms of golf. Sure. Right? They were the ones who kind of launched the Scottish golf industry. I'm and always amazed at golf movies because somehow there are, there are quite a few good ones. There are good ones, and this and is one of them. And, but here's the thing, though. There's one, two reasons why this one is good. One is because it's not just about whether he's going to sink the final putt on the final whatever. Right? That's not what it's about. It, it sticks to character, which is good. And the other reason it's good is because one of the characters was played by Peter Mullen. And anything Peter Mullen does is cool. We love him. I love Peter Mullen. Um, also, uh, the film was directed by Jason Connery, who is, of course, the son of a one of the world's biggest golf fans, Sean Connery. Who by, so get this. Did I tell you this? Huh. So 
I was in New York for the Fourth of July, right? Yep. And when I and when I go to New York, I always try to go to um, the uh, the Bertelsmann Bar, the, um, the the bar at the um, the Bertelsmann Bar. Yeah. Uh, Whatever it is. I, I, you know what? Why am I so old now? Um, it's the bar at the Carlisle. So Bemelman's. So I always go to the Bemelman's Bar, and I get a green. T- I get a um, Earl Grey Martini. Why well, am ruining the story? Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> so I go, always go to Bemelman's Bar at the Carlisle Hotel, and I get an Earl Grey Martini. It is my favorite martini in the history of the world. It is $21 for a goddamn martini, but it is worth it, and sometimes I'll have two. And I go there last July 4th over the weekend, yeah. and I talk to the bartender. He goes, you yep. could never guess who was sitting right there this morning at the bar. Who? Sean Connery. Oh, nice. So Sean Connery, who we just assumed was like just some doddering old man running out yeah. of days in Scotland, was in New York at the Carlisle Hotel over the 4th of July weekend. That's pretty great. That's great. Sean Connery. You missed him. Yes. You know, Sean Connery was also at Cannes in 97 when I was there. And uh, I remember talking to some... This is why American tourists are the worst. Uh, I was talking to some... Uh, in Paris, it was a strike. Like, as there always is at the airport. Now, we're talking to some other... Um, some other Americans were flying back and were like, oh, we were just in Cannes. They're like, oh, we were there too. We didn't even know we were just vacationing. We didn't even know that the film festival was going on. I was like, yeah, yeah, you know, I was, I was down working it. And uh, my wife came along because one of the films that she was working on was, you know, the Vim Vendors film. It was in competition. And they're like, you know, we thought it was just so great. We saw so many other Americans there, like Sean Connery. And they went down. And I just thought, oh, no. See, you didn't just say that. You didn't just say Sean Connery was an American. Okay, you like, know, it's bad enough if you call him an Englishman. Okay, where are they from? Are, they, are these people from like nowhere? They no, from they're North? from LA. They were flying back to LA. Oh, they should have known terrible. better. They just should have known better. I just thought, oh, Did come you correct on. Them? No. You say, listen, bitch. I, <laughs> I, I, it was just that wasn't going to happen. Uh, so a couple of a uh, couple of cool little uh, little genre e ish movies, and I'll ramp up. I'll start with the the lowbrow one. The trauma one, Lloyd Kaufman, just he just does not give up, man. This guy just loves what he does, and he does what he loves. Uh, Lloyd Kaufman, Last Day of School, a film by Sonny and Michael Mahal, two people who probably had never made a movie before, but Lloyd Kaufman said, here, here's $18, make a movie. And uh, he is the corpsman of our era, and uh, Last Day of School is absolutely terrible. But you know what? It's terrible in a really fun way, in a Revenge of the Nerds kind of... Uh, Don't be making fun of Revenge of the Nerds. Uh, well, you know what? It's just it's love it, that film. It, it's just it, it's it's fun in its badness. Uh, the idea is that there are these guys who were you know on the on the last day of school. These guys were cheating on their final exam, and uh, that is an excuse to give them this obstacle course of tasks, which is absurd to complete. Uh, it's just really it's an excuse for just you know a lot of raucous trauma madness but trauma has fun with these things they never take them seriously and god bless Lloyd Kaufman he is what he is I get his emails all the time do you realize every single time there's any kind of a controversial thing in the news whether it's Trump or you know Iran or North Korea or whatever I will get like a press release from trauma Lloyd Kaufman says he's the man to take on Kim Jong-un has nothing to do with it, but it's just trying to grab your attention. He is really a marketing genius. I, I he just really, he's the best. He's the best. Him and the, the William the Castle were the two. You know. And Roger Corman. Lloyd Kaufman has better Trumps, the better tweets than Trump. It's all that kind of stuff. It's hysterical. He just piggybacks on whatever it is. Love it. Uh, did you see Free Fire? I did see Free Fire. Why did that not take off? Uh, why do you think? Why did that not take off? I, you know what? It might have been a little too sub Tarantino. To really take off, I don't know that it had that, that real, oomph. that real distinctive directorial oomph that you need. Yeah, maybe. You know. See, I thought this, I thought this would be more of a cult favorite than it turned out to the be. The problem is that it, you know, you know, what the problem is that it wants to be a cult favorite. And, yeah, and that's I, probably, I, yeah. I don't like it when movies want to be yeah. a cult favorite, or so they, I, or, or, or they're, they're striving to be a midnight film. Yeah, and this one really is. Uh, but, uh, well, here's the thing. So this takes place in the 1970s in Boston. It's about a, a, an IRA arms deal gone wrong, and uh, it goes, goes really wrong. And it's an excuse just for a lot of really indulgent directing. And Brie Walker is the one who's kind of trying to orchestrate Brie this. Uh, Brie Sorry, Brie, Brie Larson. Brie oh, Brie Walker, Walker is the... Uh, yeah. The, I used to work with her years yeah. ago. No, Brie Larson is the... Uh, is, is, which is a weird thing for her to follow up an Oscar with. But... Uh, anyway, she's orchestrating this, and she gets to be a little tough and show some chops, and that's and that's fine. I thought it was really fun and uh, and rather uh, 
and, and nicely referential of a certain grindhouse kind of film. And the 70s setting is very cool. Um, but I just thought it would do better. Well, do better. yeah, I know. I mean, here's the thing. Does does Ben Wheatley really want to become the next guy, Richie? Is that like his thing? I don't know. I don't know. know. I don't know. And Ar- you know what? I have to say, I'm not a fan of Army Hammer. I don't think he's that great. I don't either. I mean, he's very I handsome, but I don't think he's that great. So I mean, and the thing is, you he's know, espe- especially for Ben Wheatley, this is this was a, this was. Th- I th- I hope this would be like a coming out party because he's done so many great, cool, independent British films. Uh, like a field in England, right? And uh, and High Rise didn't really work out but for high him. Ri- that's the thing. Like High Rise to me didn't really work 100%. That thing it was a mess. It's a mess. So I was hoping this would sort of be his shot. And I don't. I feel. I, don't, I feel like he's still floating around. Like what? Like what? What does Tarantino bring to this sort of thing that a Ben Wheatley doesn't? Yeah. You know, is it yeah. the music? Is it the script with all this with all the referential stuff? Because in yeah. Free Fire, it's just a bunch of people shooting and. It's and cool, though. And yelling at each other. It's cool. Well, I did like the fact that the violence was realistic. I mean, yeah. when you got shot in the leg, there was a little yeah. spurt of blood. You got shot yeah. in the leg. Yeah. You know, I like that. Well, anyway, a really great cast. Uh, fun movie. Ultraviolet. Blu-ray. Uh, the whole schmear. Uh, thank you, Lionsgate. Uh, what else do we have here? We have a Buster's Malheart. Now, people who like um, that guy from uh, that show. What guy from what show? <laughs> um, R- uh, Rami Malek. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. From uh, Mr. Robot? Yeah. And I'm going to check this out because there really is more to this guy than just uh, uh, being a robot. Beans and coffee? <laughs> more to him than beans and coffee? <laughs> yeah. What, 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 what? Is that a... Uh, uh, no, it's not. It's me. Just it's non sequitur. Total non sequitur. I, th- I, thought, I thought in Mr. Robot he no, ate beans and coffee no, or something. No, no reference whatsoever. Anyway, in Buster's Malhard, this thing, it's, it, it's, a, it's this very, it's this kind of confusing and odd psychological riddle of a film um, where... Malik plays, he either plays three characters or he might play one character dreaming of the other two. We're not really sure. But for one of them, he has this great idea, which is he plays this, uh, this kind of homeless drifter guy in Montana, and he's on the run from the law. And his whole thing is that he breaks into um, vacation homes where nobody's in them, and he oh. stays in them. Yeah. Which, by the way, I'm going to do that. You do I'm, I'm going to tour the world, you do, you do breaking that. into vacation homes in the off-season and just, uh, and just li- living in there. Anyway, mm-hmm. so... Um, from there, it becomes like, is it a dream? There's some b- biblical allusions to Jonah and the whale. And so it's definitely got its own little wavelength. And if you can vibe to it, you'll have a good time. But um, the, the takeaway is that Malik is a real actor. He's not just a one-trick pony kind of a guy. And so Buster's Melhart, it's, it's, it's a bit confusing. It's a bit out there. Um, but it's worth a shot, especially if you like him. Really only if you like him. I uh, got a bunch of uh, I'm going to burn through these real quickly here because we're, we're getting close to the end of the show and I want to hit some of our uh, classic movie titles and, and hopefully maybe even some foreign we, we have some criterions that we really need to get to as well uh, Spark A Space Tale oh my goodness what a terrible animated film this is uh, some decent voice casting here Jessica Biel Patrick Stewart Hilary Swank Susan Sarandon you know, but uh, really this is just one of those CGI animated things that should not exist anywhere in the universe and by universe I mean ev- our universe or the universe in this movie, which is all about a space-going monkey, I gotta tell you, this Yay, is... Yay, space-going monkey? No, no, this is like, uh, it's just not right. It's not right. Uh, so, yeah, maybe if you fixate on the voice casting, if you like the actors, but otherwise, you know, this is a waste of Blu-ray and ultraviolet. Um, a Woman Apart is a uh, really interesting strand indie... Uh, starring Maggie Siff, who has done some very, very good work on television, on shows like Mad Men. And uh, here she is a woman who is, she's an actress who just uh, finds that her life is, is going nowhere and it's empty. And she, um, she quits her job and uh, goes back to kind of start a new life with some, uh, some former partners. And it is, uh, it is a, as far as midlife crises movies go, uh, I think this one rides much more strongly on the performance than the others. The script may be a little bit thinner, but uh, she is still terrific. She's really, really good. Uh, Do You Take This Man is a movie by Joshua Tunick from Breaking Glass. And uh, this is about a, um, uh, a, a gay marriage, two men who are getting married, and uh, the, the what transpires with their friends and family... Uh, when the the intended wedding uh, does not quite go off as intended, um, so that's uh, my way of cryptically not giving anything away, uh, which is is good because this has some very very uh, good character work in the performances, and it's actually a very very clever script, a much more clever script than I probably did justice to at that time. 
Uh, love by the tenth date. Uh, the race is on for real love. This is. I. I really wish I could be kinder to movies like this. Uh, this is a Lionsgate movie that seems to be another one of those movies that thinks that if you just get a bunch of black actresses together and you throw them together and you have them do some sister-sister dialogue that it, it, it somehow makes a movie. This has been an unfortunate subgenre uh, ever since Waiting to Exhale was released, which is a really good movie, by the way. You remember Waiting to Exhale? Sure, Whitney Houston. Yeah, directed by, uh, by uh, Forrest Whitaker. It's a terrific movie. It's a really terrific movie. And uh, unfortunately, this is not Waiting to Exhale. The actresses in here do some good work. They just don't have a very substantial script. And, um, you know, the, the whole, uh, I get it. You know, it's, it's a tough world for, for black women. I'm not a black woman, so I don't really understand their dating and relationship travails. I try to. A good movie will communicate them to me. Waiting to Exhale did communicate that to me. This one does not. So um, I root for the actresses, can't really necessarily root for the movie. And then lastly, Black Butterfly. Did you see Black Butterfly? I did not. Okay, so Black Butterfly is one of those, you know, we always get the Steven Seagal, Jean-Claude Van Damme, Bruce Willis, uh, uh, Robert De Niro, whatever, Grindstone movies. Grindstone makes a lot of, you know, really tough, high-octane cop and crime junk that Lionsgate distributes through uh, Lionsgate Premiere. And this is another one. However, this is maybe the best one I've ever seen. What? Uh, really, the more I think about it, the more I kind of like it. Even though the conceit is... Uh, is fairly uh, obvious at a certain point. But Black Butterfly um, is an interesting little character thriller with Antonio Banderas and Jonathan Rhys Myers. Um, let me see how I can even, um, how I can, it's based on a French film, by the way. It's a remake of a French film that starred Eric Cantona. And I know you, you're a big fan of Cantona. He's a soccer player. Yeah, I a knew that. soccer player and a good actor, too. You know, he was in Elizabeth and he's been in other films. So the, the original of this, the original Black Butterfly was an Eric Cantona film. This is the American adaptation of it, and it's, it's a rather smart adaptation. So uh, Antonio Banderas is a failing screenwriter uh, living on his little ranch in Colorado, and he's having real money problems. And meanwhile, there uh, is a serial killer at work in the area. Ah, that's what? right. That's right. There's a serial killer going on. And uh, Jonathan Reese Myers is this really, really violent guy that Banderas uh, runs into one day in a diner because he sort of uh, there's there's a conf there's a confrontation that Banderas has with somebody else, and Jonathan Reese Myers is the guy that you know basically puts an end to it. And so Antonio Banderas feels like, okay, I'm going to give this guy, uh, you know, uh, he's an interesting guy and he just saved my bacon. So let's, why don't I try to repay the favor, of course. Myers just got out of prison. And he's, is he the serial killer? Is he not the serial killer? And all these questions swirling around. And uh, their relationship becomes uh, uh, interesting. And I will leave it right there. The, the twists and turns of this thing are uh, a little bit mechanical, but it is, um, it's a smart film. It's a surprisingly smart film and well-directed and well-written and certainly incredibly well-acted by the two. Jonathan Rhys Myers hasn't been that good in a long time, even, even playing, you know, Henry VIII on, on TV. So it's pretty sharp. Yeah. All right. Um, Wait, Mark? come on. Just talk about that. Talk about which? The one on the bottom. The one on the bottom. Just Hold get on. over with. Do it. The one on the bottom. Oh, <laughs> okay. Go ahead. Talk about it. Lost America. Let's Yay. do it. You love this movie. You've been wanting to talk about that all afternoon. How could you not love Lost in America? I do love Lost in America. It's you one know, of my favorite Albert Brooks movies. Wait, what's funny is that when Lost in America came out, yep. um, I, you know, we're talking 1985. I know. You know, the whole thing about like the, the, you know, the, the, the dissatisfied yuppie who decides to throw it all away, you know? Because yep. we're talking about, you know, that post-World War II, post-Eisenhower sure. era thing where, yep. where it's, we're getting into the 80s now and everyone's making a lot of money and everyone's got the kids and the successful career and the, 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 the dog and the picket fence. Yep. And, and the idea that maybe there's not a whole lot of satisfaction in that and there might be another way to live your life. And in the film, um, Albert Brooks and Julie Haggerty, who you remember from the uh, airplane films, uh, they decide to just throw it all away. Yep. They're going to dis discover America and discover themselves by getting into a camper and just hitting the road. And, of course, they realize that just giving up your entire life and hitting the road is harder than it seems. If Ben Wheatley had made this movie, they would be, they would be serial killers. They, they'd be dead. But he actually did make that movie. Exactly. Yeah. So this thing is just flat-out hilarious. I love this film. It's pretty great. 
Yep. It's pretty great. This is this is Albert Brooks's vision of, and and, and I'm so sad that he you know he kind of he he bonked his career with uh, finding comedy in the Muslim, Muslim world. world. Yeah, he hasn't made a movie since. No, no one's gonna let him make a movie again, and that's that's sad because if he I think he still has a, these movies in him. Well, now he's doing some serious roles. He did you know uh, yeah. he played he was yeah. great in Drive. Yep. People thought he might be shortlisted for an Oscar for that. Yeah. Should have um, been. Came in, came in just out of the wire, um, and his. Twitter account. I mean, he's. I've read a lot of his tweets, and they do yeah. make me laugh. Really? Oh yeah. Yeah. I have to say, I'm not okay. a big Twitter guy, but uh, his tweets do make me laugh. Patton, o Patton Oswalt is another one of those. He's uh, Patton Oswalt is a is a machine on Twitter, and he's just outrageously funny all the time. But here's the thing: is that even uh, you know, 30 years removed, this thing is still re totally relevant. Sweet. You know, because people still are tired of the life that they're living, and they dream of throwing it all away and going off and living an adventure. And although that seems very freeing and and exciting at the time. Throwing it all away, living an adventure is not has its consequences. Yep, yep. And so it's just just as relevant today. And yep. so this is Brooks at his best. Love this film. All they need to do now is just release "Defending Your Life" on Blu-ray. Yep. And I'll die happy. Yep. Thank it, you. It, it'll come out. It will. And uh, apparently there is a, in fact, a Criterion release of uh, Till the End of the World, the uh, Vim Vendors thing, the director's cut. That's, that's yeah. in the offing as well. So uh, real quickly, some other uh, uh, recent um, vintage titles, classic titles, a couple from the Warner Archive collection on Blu-ray. Warner Archive is doing a lot of Blu-ray these days. They've really upped the output of their Blu-rays. And uh, they've got a couple of great ones here. Uh, Running on Empty. Uh, with River Phoenix and Judd Hirsch and um, uh, Christine Lottie is a really, really good movie. The Sidney Lumet directed this. It's it's a fascinating look at a um, at you know a family where you know the parents were radicals and how they're kind of reconstituting their lives uh, some years later. And uh, this is one of the one of the better Sidney Lumet movies of uh, of, his of his later late, years. later years yes. for sure. Running on empty. Worth pointing out too was written by Naomi Foner, who received an Oscar nomination for her screenplay. And Naomi Foner is the mother of the Gyllenhaals. Uh, Jake, you know, Gyllenhaal Jake Gyllenhaal and, the, and uh, the, the the sister. Yes, she is. She is the uh, and Maggie. So uh, running on empty on Blu-ray is uh, is a wonderful, wonderful addition from the uh, Warner Archive collection. Also, Joe versus the volcano. Which is so unfairly maligned. Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan in what I like I, this movie. I love this movie. This was this was <laughs> written and directed by John Patrick Shanley. It was his directing debut right after he won his Oscar for Moonstruck, and it pretty much tanked his career as, as a writer and director there. Which is completely thereafter. not fair. It's not. It, it seemed. You know what? I think at the time it just seemed like this big bloated Hudson Hawk type thing. It did. Nobody. And by the way, Hudson Hawk, which is kind of funny too. I thought. I love both those films. Uh, and Ishtar, another big bloated thing. I which love is funny all, too. I love that too. <laughs> These movies you, all belong. You, you love bloated. That's why you love Mad, 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 Mad World so much. I love bloated comedy. But here's the thing: Joe versus the volcano was was deemed to be you know a whole lot of fluff about nothing. It's not. It's a fascinating quasi fantasy about s just struggling to find meaning in the modern world, and it's a really really interesting movie, and it's a lot of fun. And for crying out loud, come on! Tom Hanks does the funny little dance on the raft. And Abe Vigoda is an island chieftain. How do you not love a movie that stars Abe Vigoda as, a, as an eye-rolling island chieftain? Come on. What kind of sourpuss are you? We Give need me a break. To, we need to reevaluate Joe versus we the Volcano. We really do. Joe versus the Volcano is so charming and so funny, and it's just so original. And John Patrick Shanley really got a shaft on this. I'm, I'm thrilled that this is out on Blu-ray. Uh, it includes a behind-the-scenes documentary and uh, a music video. The, the, the documentary will give you not a great deal of appreciation for the movie, but it'll, it'll certainly help. Uh, Twilight Time uh, has come out uh, with, uh, with a bunch of great new titles as well. The, uh, the four titles from Twilight Time this month are just really, really uh, continue to be just the, the best. Twilight Time just really, really hits it out of the park every single time. Uh, they've released Rodgers and Hammerstein's State Fair, not one of my favorite Rodgers and Hammerstein movies, nah. but, um, but, but you know what? It's a really, really beautifully photographed movie. And uh, it is noteworthy because it was directed by Jose Ferrer. And, uh, right, you know, yeah. Love. Yeah, and uh, that's worthwhile. It has an isolated music track, which is also fantastic. And here's the thing that makes this really, really great. They went and they, they somehow got Pat Boone to do an audio commentary. And it is awesome. 
It is awesome. There are so many anecdotes, and it is Pat Boone is just such a great talker. It's a wonderful commentary. You got to give it give it a listen. Um, so uh, you know, this is this is not the best Rodgers and Hammerstein movie, but it's a great Blu-ray, and it's really really worth a look. Uh, the Crimson Kimono, somewhat forgotten. Nice to see this one uh, rediscovered. This is from 1959. A um, uh, one of the it's, uh, you know, it is, uh, it's one of the lesser-known Samuel Fuller films these days, but it was kind of more noteworthy uh, in his, his body of work at the time. I don't know why it kind of fell off the, the map a little bit, but it is, uh, it's a really, really cool noir-ish, but not entirely a noir um, movie that uh, also deals with some very interesting ethnic issues that weren't really you know, being dealt with at the time in 1959. Specifically, um, it's about a murder that takes place in Little Tokyo, which, of course, in Los Angeles is the the center of Japanese culture. There are a few other locales that are there, you know, where Japanese culture and where Japanese families uh, took root. But Little Tokyo is the, the the tourist attraction, right? It's where the mall is. It's where all that stuff is, and um, it's the one part of Los Angeles that was never really a part of noirs. So it's like Chinatown in that sense. They went and found. Uh, some aspect of Los Angeles that had previously not been subject to a noir, except in Chinatown. Ch- Chinatown's never actually in the movie. It's, you know, a, a, a spiritual place. Here it's actually, you know, Little Tokyo, and it's really quite cool how, how this all executes. It's a really good Samuel Fuller movie. Uh, then we also have a double feature of Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn. Uh, these are a little bit uh, mismatched. They were made in 1973 and 1974, um, and they, neither of them is terribly faithful. Uh, Johnny Whitaker, you know, is kind of not the best casting here. And uh, perhaps my bigger problem is the, the musical nature of this. You know, the, the Sherman brothers um, d- d- were trying to do something uh, interesting after leaving Disney, after no longer being contract uh, songwriters at Disney. And uh, I'm not sure that uh, Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn are the best projects to sort of hang themselves on. Uh, it's, it's a little strange and, and misbegotten, uh, not really faithful to uh, Mark Twain. But uh, some people have a nostalgic attachment to these movies, and uh, obviously Twilight Time recognizes that and has put them out uh, in a double feature. So if, uh, you know, if you do have a fondness for these films, if you grew up with them, uh, by all means, you know, it's good that you know it's there, but it's, I, don't, I don't have that fond attachment. And then lastly, and we're going to wrap the show out with this today, uh, Woody Allen's Everything You Always Want to Know About Sex, asterisk, but we're afraid to ask. Yay. That's the complete title to this thing. Uh, Mark, tell us why we should appreciate uh, Gene Wilder in a Woody Allen movie that everyone else has long dismissed as one of Woody Allen's worst. Because it's part of his earlier funny ones. <laughs> and even the lesser of his earlier funny ones. Now, this one is, is very... Uh, it's, it's, it's episodic. It's, yeah. You know, it's... Uh, but it's but it's it looks so funny. Come on, he runs around funny. like a sperm. They, they, they're, they're, they're in the little white chamber, all dressed as sperm, and then they got to go. It's very clever. It's funny. It's very clever. Come on, is it one of his best? It is not. Yeah, no, but it's a very very clever movie. It's especially when you consider it in the arc of his career. Yes, no, I right because he I was would. just he was getting ready to transition. Man, he he yep. wanted to be taken seriously. Yep. And literally, he'll do everything he always wanted to know about sex, where he dresses as a sperm, mm-hmm. and within a couple of years, so he's doing interiors. Yeah, exactly. No, it's, uh, I, I think it's a very important film in Woody's, uh, Woody's body of work. And it's especially, it's not just Woody doing, doing um, sexual revolution shtick, which is what a lot of people sort of dismissed it as. It's like, oh, now you can talk about sex in you know, cute little ways in the movies, and so Woody, Woody's going you know, to take that to the, to the wall. Well, it, it's more than that. It's, sort of, it's very, very personal. Woody, as we all now know, Woody's sexual history is, is not that of, a, of, a, of a, a normal, average, ordinary human being. Um, his relationship history, his family history, it's, it, you know, it's, a little bit, it's a little bit askew. And when you look at this movie now, in hindsight, through the prism of all of that, um, it actually is, uh, it's a little more, it's, it's a much more personal film than I think anybody gave it credit for being. He's had way more sex on his brain than, than anybody that, anybody, uh, that short and ugly would ever really <laughs> yeah, deserve to it's, have. It's really true, you know. 
Uh, so, yeah. Anyway. All right, well, that's it for this week's show, and uh, we will be back next week. Uh, we're getting into, uh, we're getting pretty close to the fall season. We're going to start getting gobs of television, probably. And some real movies. And some real movies. Thank goodness. It's about time. And uh, I'm telling you, man, Churchill, Gary Oldman, mark that one down. Sight unseen. Uh, I would say that I, I'm going to predict right now. So if you have not seen the film. I haven't seen the film. All I've seen is the trailer. It's all anyone has seen. If the movie stinks, then no, he's not going to have a chance, no matter how good the performance is. But I'll tell you, that trailer is... Un look, pull it up right now. You're going to be blown away. Right now? Can we stop the show? Then I'll do it. Or no, do, do, it, it, do it after the show. Do it after the show. You are going to be blown away. It's, uh, it's unbelievable. Gary Oldman absolutely becomes... Winston Churchill in the most uncanny way I've ever seen. Uh, it's 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 an Oscar. Put one, clean off that mantle. He's gonna win it. See you guys next week. <laughs>